Years ago, I was at a Christian leadership conference, and I was a very young pastor and a very young dad just trying to get it all right. And I will never forget the words of one of the speakers there who uh, said this phrase that has just stuck in my heart and my brain from, from that day till now. He, he said these words, I will not sacrifice my family on the altar of ministry. Well, in a, in a room of 13,000 pastors wanting to be successful in ministry, those words just kind of hung in the air and pierced our hearts. In other words, if the cost of success in ministry uh, means too much time away from my family, or it means I cut corners as a husband or a dad, or if it means ignoring my, pre my priorities at home, it's, it's not worth it. If it means that I lose my moral center and take my eyes off Jesus and compromise my faith or my character, I'm out, is what he was saying. Because if you fail at family, you fail. If you fail at family, you fail. But it's not like this is only a ministry thing, right? This is an anything thing. Because though you may live not in a ministry world, but you live kind of like out in the real world, and we all know people who are the top salespeople in their company and they have horrible home lives. We all know that CEO that makes six, maybe seven figures, and they're on their fourth, maybe fifth wife. We all know that school administrator who is lauded for his or her success in leading an organization, or that surgeon who is lauded for their genius, and they have no relationship with their adult children. We all know that business person who has made it to the top of their industry, but they haven't talked to their parents or their brother or sister in years. And if you fail at family, you fail. And you don't have to look much farther than Hollywood, right, that has the prettiest people and the ugliest marriages, the most made-up faces and the most messed-up families. And King David, unfortunately, fell into that kind of category. His success took him to the top. He had reached the highest level that he could, but he didn't like what it cost him to get there. This last story that we're going to talk about in this series, Learning to Lead, and, and perhaps you're here for the very first time and you're here in part six of a, of a series uh, that we've been studying the life of King David. We'd love for you to go to our website or YouTube page and kind of watch them all because there are so many wonderful things you can learn from David, but to, this is kind of a what not to do moment. And it's not really even a moment, it's more of a season of things. And, and, it's, and I cannot just tell you, it's difficult. It's, it's, off, it's got some awful things, okay? Rape, murder, jealousy, betrayal, and regret. And the story starts at the end of last week's story. So if you haven't watched that, I would love to encourage you to do. 
to do that. But let me just kind of give you an abridged version. David has a fall from glory. He is the king. He's a man after God's own heart. But he takes another man's wife. He gets her pregnant. He has her husband killed to cover it all up just because he's king and he wants what he wants and he wants to do whatever he wants to do. And he confesses and he's forgiven by God. The prophet Nathan is sent to him and he says, the Lord has taken away your sin. But that doesn't mean there, there aren't going to be consequences, right? Just because you are forgiven by God doesn't mean that there aren't consequences as well. And we're going to start in 2 Samuel 12. We're going to end up all the way in 2 Samuel 18. So if you've got your Bibles at home or here or you've got maybe your app open on your phone or tablet, you want to turn them to 2 Samuel 12, we're going to have to, like I said, this is a season, this is a story that spans about six or seven chapters, but we've got to just get little pieces of it or, or the end of the story won't make sense. But when we see the whole story, there's power about what not to do. So we're going to start 2 Samuel 12. And if you don't have a hard copy Bible, take one of the bookshelves out uh, on your way out. We want to give one to you. This is what it says. Now, therefore, the sword will never depart from your house. This is Nathan telling David after he tells him that the Lord has taken away your sin. Your sins are forgiven. The sword will never depart from your house because you despised me and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own. This is what the Lord says. Out of your own household, I'm going to bring calamity on you. Just because you are forgiven doesn't mean that there aren't earthly consequences. If you commit a crime... God will forgive you, but you might have to spend some time in jail, or you might have to pay a fine, right? I mean, everybody in the room has gotten a speeding ticket before, just about, and the Lord has forgiven you for that, but, the, you know, the local government wants your $80 or $150. That's just the way it works. There are earthly consequences for that. And if you do something like David, it's probably going to impact your family dynamics. And so so here's what I want to say about this, and you're going to hear me say this several times today, and maybe it'll start start to to leave a mark in your heart. And if you've been around me, I know our elders and our staff have heard me say this before. It's just something I so believe, and David learns this lesson. Sin leaves awake. Sin is not, like, is not like a car that flies by on the freeway and we just smell the exhaust for about 10 seconds and then it's gone. No, no, no. Sin is much more like a motorboat. It's much more like a ski boat that, that comes by, flies by on, on glassy, smooth waters. You ever been there? You ever been sitting on a dock at a lake and you've seen that and it's so smooth and then all of a sudden a ski boat flies by and what happens? It leaves a wake. How long does that wake last? A while, doesn't it? You can just sit there and watch it. And the further you di- distance you get from that, that ski boat, the, the smoother it gets, but it leaves a wake. And everybody that even though it's out of distance is still in it. And what David doesn't understand is that his sin, his willingness to sacrifice his moral code because of the position he was given of of leader, of a king, is going to leave a wake not just in his kingdom. It's going to leave a wake in his family of 
toxicity and brokenness and tragedy and betrayal and selfishness. David hasn't even begun to compromise what he has taught his sons. And so the next chapter starts off like this. In the course of time, Amnon, son of David, fell in love with Tamar, the beautiful sister of Absalom, son of David. Now, this is one of those verses, like, can be really confusing. You read that verse and go, like, I don't understand. Like, how, what's the relation here, okay? Absalom and Amnon are, are half-brothers. David had multiple wives, okay? Amnon's uh, mom was Ahinoam, and Absalom's mom was Maaka. Absalom and Tamar had the same mom. So Absalom and Tamar are full-blooded brother and sister. And Amnon uh, is, is in love with his half-sister Tamar. Now, Amnon, you need to know, is the firstborn son of David. Now, what does that mean? He's the heir to the throne. But Absalom has his eyes on the kingdom as well. And this, so what we're going to read here isn't just a tragedy of the ugliest kind of abuse, but it's also a tragedy of family political dynamics, of abuses, of power. It's a, it's a horrific story. And verse 2 of chapter 13 says this, Amnon became so obsessed with his sister Tamar. He became so obsessed with his sister Tamar that he made himself ill. She was a virgin, and it seemed impossible for him to do anything to her. He becomes completely and totally infatuated with her, almost to the point that he is making himself sick about it. He doesn't know what to do, so he goes to an advisor, and this is the advice he gets from the advisor. He says, well, why don't you pretend that you're sick and tell your father David that, you know, Dad, the one thing that would make me feel better is uh, if you would have my half-sister tomorrow come and feed me, I sure would feel better if you do that. And so that's exactly what he does. He fakes an illness. He tells David, you know, if you could bring Tamar to feed me, that would help me feel better. And when she gets close, he grabs her and asks her to come to bed with him. And this is her response. She says, no, my brother, she said to him, don't force me. And this is unbelievable. Such a thing should not be done in Israel. And is this an interesting fact? Some of these things should not be done in Israel because we have a different way to do things. There were other cultures that did not respect women, that did not have respect of, of relationships and family dynamics. But in Israel, God had set a law, a code that was better, that was higher than most other cultures. Don't do this wicked thing. What about me? Where could I get rid of my disgrace if you do this and if we do this? And what about you? If you do this and we do this, you would be like one of the wicked fools in Israel. It turns out that Tamar knows the Jewish law better than Amnon does, or at least she's the only one concerned with obeying it. Leviticus 18.9 spells it out clearly like this. Do not have sexual relations with your sister, either your father's daughter or your mother's daughter, whether she was born in the same home 
or elsewhere. And Tamar says, no, listen, Amnon, you can't do this. We can't do this. It's not, it's, it is not just going to be a, a, over. It's going to follow you. There's going to be disgrace on my name and on, on my life. There's going to be wickedness on your name and on the rest of your life. What she's trying to tell Amnon is you think you're just infatuated and you think you just want this in this moment, but Amnon, be careful because sin leaves awake. And this is going to follow you, Amnon, and it's going to follow me. But he doesn't care, and he rapes her. And Samuel writes that afterward he is disgusted with her and kicks her out. She's disgraced. Under Jewish law, he's commanded to take her in as his wife, but he refuses to do it. And she's no longer allowed to live in the court of virgins and goes and tells her brother Absalom and lives with him. This story is not just about lust. It's also about power. In those days, the way you exercised your authority, your dominion over your rival was to have sex with his wife, his concubine, or his sister. Amnon is staking his claim to the throne. But this sin is going to leave awake. Now, let me just stop right here and say that for some of you, particularly women, but not only women, this passage is a brutal reminder of abuse, of sexual harassment. And the big C church, the greater church, does not have a great track record in dealing with men who have used their power to abuse women. And uh, I want you to know that if you've been abused anywhere, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry and there's no excuse for it, and we want to help. You are a victim. You are loved by God. You are cherished by God. So here's how we want to help. There's a number on the screen that uh, if you've been abused, you can call. If you want to talk to somebody anonymous, if you want to report abuse, you call the number, whether you're watching at home or whether you're here, you can see that number. Uh, and you can talk to an anonymous person. If you want to ever talk to any of our pastoral staff, uh, you are welcome to do that. We would, we would be humbled and honored to sit and talk with you. Some, sometimes you carry this stuff around for decades, and uh, we want you to know we love you, and we want to walk with you through it. And I just, I just don't think we can read that passage without taking a moment to recognize how difficult it is for some to read it. So when David hears about this, he's furious. He's furious. But Absalom has an interesting response. In uh, verse 22, it says this, and Absalom never said a word to Amnon, either good or bad. Didn't say a word. He hated Amnon because he had disgraced his sister, tomorrow. He just stewed and stewed and stewed over it. Didn't say a word, 
but in his heart he hated him. And then in the very next verse, it says this, two years later. It gives you real like Avengers Endgame vibes, right? You're like, whoa. Two years later, he just stews on it. He just sits on it. He just sits with it. Now listen, now let, me, let me say this, because here, here's the point that we all relate, we, we can all relate to. Is I, I, I know we read this story and you're like, man, that is one messed up family, right? I mean, they've got some things going on in that family that most families, not all, because some do have some horrific things, but, but you know, listen, they've got rape, they've got incest, they're fighting over a throne. I, no one in my family's fighting over a throne, right? I mean, so they, you, it's easy to look at this story and go, well, I, I'm not a royal family and I, we don't have that kind of stuff. So I, I just want you to just kind of take out the gravity of the awful things that have happened, but just realize that here's where we relate with Absalom. Here's where we relate with David and here's where we, we, we sit in this situation. Everyone has family issues. Yours might not be as bad as David's and Absalom's and Amnon's. You might not have that, but everyone has family issues and everyone has been wronged. Some of you, that was the same thing. You were wronged by a family member. That's the, that's the issue. Some of you were wronged by a business partner or by an ex. But some, we all have family issues. Maybe your family issues is you've got a family member caught in addiction. Maybe you've got a family member that right now is behind bars. Uh, maybe you've got a family member that's in a relationship you don't approve of. Maybe you got a family member that, that said something to grandma and you hadn't forgiven them for it. Maybe you've got a family member that when grandma and grandma died or when mama and daddy died and y'all sat down with the lawyer and y'all started going over the will and things got real tense and people said things they probably shouldn't have said and you hadn't talked in a few months or you hadn't talked in a few years. Yeah, listen, come on. Everybody's got family issues. What's Absalom going to do? Well, he kills him. He stews for two years, and at just the right time when he gets his sights on Amnon and gets Amnon within reach, he kills him. And when David hears about it, he tears his clothes and he mourns. Because sin leaves awake. I wonder where Amnon learned to just take whatever woman he wanted. And I wonder where Absalom learned to just kill a man if you have a problem with him. Sin leaves awake. And if you're in leadership, can I just tell you that the wake is bigger because it makes the whole organization, the whole school, the whole team, the whole classroom, the whole church on choppy waters. And moms and dads, the whole family. Sin leaves awake. Well, Absalom flees to his maternal grandfather and David mourns. He has a kingdom, but he's lost his family. 
and three years pass. It takes David three years to get over the mourning for Amnon's death, for how how for what Amnon has done to Tamar, for how Absalom has responded. The whole situation is awful. But after three years of mourning, in verse 38 of chapter, chapter 13, it, it says this, and King David longed to go to Absalom, for he was consoled concerning Amnon's death. He reached the point where he realized that he had lost one son, and he didn't want to lose another. He couldn't get Amnon back, but he didn't want to lose another And even despite all that, because David knew what we said at the beginning, if you fail at family, you fail. And after all that has been done, Absalom is still his son. But listen, you know how true this is. When you have a family dispute, when you have a family tension, when you've got a family problem, you know how hard it is to take the first step. Woo! It's hard to take the first step, isn't it? It's hard to reach out after you hadn't talked in three years, five years. It's hard when you both said some things sitting in that lawyer's, that attorney's office that you shouldn't have said. And so Joab, his general, his military commander, sends a woman who is kind of a a soothsayer, a truth teller, to tell a story to David, much like Nathan told a story to David to open his eyes to convict him of his sin with Bathsheba. This is a story to not convict him of any sin, but to open his eyes to maybe make a move. She tells him this story about these two brothers that get in a fight, and one of them ends up banished from the rest of the community and the rest of the village. And what do you think they should do? And David's response in hearing the story, he says, like, well, of course. I mean, they should bring that son home. You know, he belongs with his family. And then this woman says, she says something. And listen, this is like a verse. This This is why it's so important to engage the scriptures, so important to dig into the word. Because sometimes you can just be reading in the middle of 2 Samuel, and there's a lot of names you can't pronounce. And there's a lot of gritty stories that are really ugly. And then you get into one of these verses that just hits you like a ton of bricks. And this is such a powerful nugget. This is what she says. Like water spilled on the ground, which cannot be recovered, so we must die. Some of you, you probably wonder why we have some sod over here. All right, so see this water bottle? Now, I'm going to pour this water right here in this sod. Now, I poured about half the bottle. Where's the water at? Where's it at? It's right there. Anybody want to come put it back in? I mean, it didn't disappear, did it? You can't put it back. You can't put it back. Man, what a line. David, every day the clock is ticking. And you can't go back in time. And if you haven't reconciled with Absalom and you're on your deathbed, you can't go back. Your life is like water poured out on the ground. And you can never recover it. And you'll have regrets, David, if you don't do something about it right now. 
Don't let your life be, be spilled out and poured out on the ground. And then she says this, but that is not what God desires. God would not desire that your life would be poured out and at the end and you'll just be left with the regret that you can't go back. Rather, I love this verse. He devises ways so that a banished person does not remain banished from him. We have a God who devises ways to bring banished sons and daughters home. Come on. I mean, we have a God who would devise a way for a banished son to come home, from a banished daughter. This is the heart of God. And I love to say it this way, banishment vanishes in the grace of God. And if you feel like a, a lost son or daughter, you feel like you've been a little bit banished, the church ought to be the place where banished sons and daughters can come home. That is the heart of God, David. And that is the heart of your father. That is the heart of God, David. And David, come on, after all, aren't you a man after God's own heart? So, David tells Joab, go get him. And he brings Absalom home, back to Jerusalem. But David says, I, I'm not ready to see him. <laughs> in fact, he, he isn't ready to see him for two years. But he's back in, and finally, after two years of Absalom being back in Jerusalem, he says, I'm ready to, I'm ready to see him. And he comes back and Absalom bows down with his face to the ground and David kisses him and welcomes him and restores him and thus ends our Hallmark movie. I wish. Absalom uses his place as the restored son back home to begin to build an army. In fact, it's, it's really, there's kind of a fascinating, if you read it, the, I mean, Absalom's a really interesting character. It says he's the best looking man in all of Israel and people are just naturally drawn to him. People can't help it. They're naturally drawn to him. It says that he, he reaches down and kisses his adoring fans and he even begins to tell them, he says, you know, when they can't get an audience with David and they're frustrated because he's so big and the kingdom's so big, he begins to tell people, you know, wouldn't it be great if I had a little more authority and power, if dad would give me a little bit, then you could bring your, you know, you could bring your things to me and I could, I could judge, I could give you a judgment before whatever dispute. I mean, wouldn't it be great if I just had a little bit more authority? And for four years, he builds this secret military, this secret um, uprising until one day, one day, a messenger comes and tells David this. A messenger came and told David, the hearts of the people of Israel are with Absalom. Like one day, they just kind of wake up and they're like, more people like Absalom than like David. More people want Absalom to be king than David. Then David said to all his officials who were with him in Jerusalem, come, we must flee or none of us will escape Absalom. We must leave immediately or he will move quickly to overtake us and bring ruin on us and put the city to the sword. It says in 2 Samuel 15, 13, 14, you see, I know him. I know what he'll do, 
because I know who taught him to fight and I know who taught him to do whatever he wants to do however he wants to do it. So David leaves. He goes into exile. We're not exactly sure how long most scholars think. It's a few weeks, maybe a few months. And then he becomes convinced that it's time to try to take the kingdom back. So he, he gathers a small army. <laughs> you know, he's outnumbered. Absalom's got most of the military. He gathers a small army, and he gets ready to fight. But his men tell him that he probably shouldn't go. David is in his 60s now. And his men tell him, you probably shouldn't go out and lead the fight. And he says, okay, I'll, t I'll take your advice. I I'll trust you, but here's what I want you to do. The it says this in chapter 18, verse 5. The king commanded Joab, his general, Abisha and Atai, two of the officers in the Israeli army, be gentle with the young man Absalom for my sake. And all the troops heard the king giving orders concerning Absalom to each of the commanders. The whole army heard this, this command. After all Absalom has done, David says, be gentle. Be gentle. Don't hurt him. And David's army routs Absalom's army. And though the soldiers obeyed David, when Joab finds out where Absalom is, he and his officers take three spears right through Absalom's heart to end this once and for all. And when messengers come from the front lines back to Jerusalem and, and they tell David, we won, good news. The Lord has vindicated you and the Lord has delivered you. That's, we won, he's restored you to his rightful place and David wants to know about one thing. Guess what he wants to know about? He wants to know about Absalom. And when he hears the news, in verse 33 it says this, the king was shaken and he went up to the room over the gateway and wept. And as he went, he said, oh, my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, if only I had died instead of you, oh, Absalom, my son, my son. He'd won a kingdom and lost his family. And David knew if you fail at family, you fail. And this becomes so crystal clear because right after this, Joab comes to find him. And he's like, you know, king, why are you so upset? Listen, why are you so downtrodden? Why are you weeping? Why are you mourning? We have won. You have been vindicated. You have been restored to your rightful place. And the whole town is ready to celebrate because you are back where you're supposed to be. You are king again. And you are acting like all these people who are joyously celebrating your victory and ready to receive you back as king. You are acting like this turncoat son of yours matters more than they do. They love you. Why do you care about Absalom? Because if you fail at family, you fail. And you can win a kingdom 
and lose your family, Jesus said, you can gain the whole dadgum world. I'd put the dadgum in there. And lose your soul. And what David knew was that there was a question lingering in his heart that is one that we need to wrestle with. Do the people who know me best love me most? All the people in Jerusalem adored David. But his sin had left awake in his family and the people that knew him best hated him. One day, you're going to pour out your last drop. And you can't go back. This is what I say. You're going to have a funeral and there's going to be some people on the front row. And I know at my funeral, I want to be famous on the front row. I want to be famous with the front row people. I don't care about anybody else in the room. But man, I want to be famous with the front row at my funeral. So maybe do you need to send a text? Write that letter? Make that call? Reconcile that relationship? Because one day, it's going to all be empty and you can't get it back. And like David, you're going to wish you had. Some of you are like, man, I've messed this up, Carter. But I want to share some good news with you. We serve a God who gives second chances. And I want you to listen to this written by a broken and sinful king who wasn't only a general and a warrior and a monarch, but also was a poet. In Psalm 51, he wrote the words of David, cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear the joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. And listen to this, create in me a pure heart, O oh God, and renew a steadfast spirit in me. Maybe you feel like you, you've got a wake going on because of something in your life. Or maybe this series, there's just been something. And, and, and you're just thinking like, I got to get better at this. I got to get better at family. I got to get better at leading. I got to get better at, at, at making sure my eyes are on Jesus. Whatever it is, I got to get better. And here's what I just want to invite you to, not to just get better, to get new. So we're going to close with a song. And I want to invite you to a renewed spirit and a renewed heart. Heavenly Father, thank you that you clean us, that you make us whiter than snow, that you renew our spirit within us. Make us new today. In Jesus' name, 
Amen. Why don't you stand as we sing? And the altar is open for you to come and pray.